Good morning, everybody. It is good to be back again, like we said, in the sanctuary. Do you realize it has been not just in the sanctuary, but also, you know, we got people on live streaming, we got people in the lobby, so I'm so grateful that we have a way to accommodate everyone. Um, you realize it has been 34 weeks since we had a, a kind of regular service in the sanctuary, 34 weeks. So it's been a long time. And um, I'm glad to be back in, although I got to be honest, I, I, there's something I liked about being outside. For one, it, it's been 34 weeks since I had to wear shoes on a Sunday. I mean, I was like sporting the slippers. I'm like, yeah, yeah, there's, I know there are flip-flops here, but there's slippers where I come from. So I don't know, may, slippers maybe on the inside, is that good? Maybe? Uh, well, I'm getting some like, mm, let's see. All right. Um, oh, only when I'm in what? In my Kung Fu shirt. Oh, the Bruce Lee one. Okay, well, maybe so. But um, it's also weird because when we were outside, man, it felt like you guys were like, whoo, I mean, we were like close to each other. And I love that. Now you guys feel a little bit further apart. So um, oh, there's, the, the point I'm getting at is that even in difficult situations, there's always stuff that is redeeming and God is kind to us in that way, isn't he? Uh, well, it's good to be back. And again, we're continuing to pray and we think of our friends who are on live stream and um, you know, our hearts are with you, and, and so we're grateful that we can have both going on simultaneously. Well, with that, let's jump into our study of God's Word. If you have a Bible, uh, open up to 2 Timothy chapter 4. I think that's page 996. If you need to use a pew Bible in front of you, feel free to grab one of those. As you're opening the 2 Timothy chapter 4, I guess, you know, this is the last letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, and, and I have to wonder what it was like for Paul thinking that early morning when he was marched out to the Ostian Road. Now, the details we have of the event are vague, and tradition and history supply only a few, and even those, they may or may not be true. What we do know is that it was customary to execute a prisoner, especially a prisoner of prominence, a few miles outside the city of Rome, because then you wouldn't have crowds, and without crowds, there wasn't the possibility of fomenting more rebellion. In Paul's case, it was probably late spring, maybe early June, when those uh, centurions and the executioners came to his cell to march him out. You can't help but think of Jesus Himself when He bore His cross walking through the Via Dolorosa. Paul, being a criminal of the empire, surely would have been exposed to the mocking and abuse of those bystanders who be, happened to see Him walking or marching out to His sure death. There would have been nobody defending this man. I'd like to think, I'd like to hope that, that, that Paul would have had at least one friend, maybe, maybe, maybe Luke, uh, who was with him throughout much of the book of Acts, maybe even Timothy, that he had one friend with him when he met his end. If he did, we don't know. But surely if they allowed him to, if allowed him to have a friend, either one of them would have been walking as close as possible to bring some kind of comfort to Paul. Either way, there would have been no band of Christians following Paul on his way to execution, and good, there's a good chance that the church didn't even know the day he was being executed. But if you know Paul, right, and if you've been reading your Bible, you, you do know Paul in some ways, it's a sure thing that some of those centurions, who knows, maybe even the executioner, would have at least had respect for this man. They might have even had an affection for him. 
Paul was a great man. He may not have been an intimidating presence of a man, but he had a passion for the truth of the gospel and everyone who came with him. Wherever Paul went, there was either revivals or riots, right? It was never a dull moment with Paul. So even if may, they may not have uh, be friends, and maybe some of them were, because we do know in the gospels that there were centurions who believed in the gospel. We also know that there were members of Caesar's household that became disciples of Jesus Christ. Maybe even a few of those were walking with Paul on his way to the Ostian Road. Maybe they considered him a friend. He was in prison quite often. Maybe one or two of them considered Paul a spiritual mentor. Maybe he led one or two of them to know Jesus Christ. It's a guarantee, though, if that was the case, they would not betray their affection for Paul because that would mean more than likely they might be executed as well, they and their families. And Paul, we know, would not have allowed that because the gospel has to go on, even though for Paul, it's the time of his departure. He was leaving the city of Rome, and ironically enough, he was actually now marching to the true eternal city. And Paul knew Rome well, no doubt, but I'm pretty sure that day as he was marching out, his eyes were fixed on other things. You can, you can imagine Outside the city walls, the the busy merriment of life was going on, crowds flowing into the city as Paul was marched out of it. Few, probably no one knew or cared anything about what what was happening to Paul. He was just another criminal being walked out of the city to get his head knocked off. No big deal. It happens quite a bit. A good place outside the city, probably a few miles out, the executioners would stop. They'd lay the executioner's block down, and Paul would lay his head on it. Maybe it was early morning. Maybe it was sunrise. You can imagine, uh, I've only seen pictures. I've never been there, but you can imagine the the splendor and beauty of those Roman hills as the light, the, the fire, the fields ablaze, the flowers ablaze, the warm morning sun coming over the sunrise. Not a bad sight for the last sight you'll ever see. Sword goes up, maybe it was an axe goes up, and off rolls the head of the greatest preacher the gospel's ever known. Tradition does tell us that a Roman matron by the name of Luciana buried the body of St. Paul in her own land besides the Ostian Road. Now, as we think about Paul's death, we, we don't know how much longer it was from when he wrote this. It was probably a couple of months, given that we'll see next week. He talks about visiting him before the winter seasons come in. So it's probably the, the winter before. So it might have happened just a few months after he wrote this letter that Timmy received, Timothy received it. Hopefully, he was able to get to Paul before the spring and, and the execution. We don't know. It's a somber reality, but it's not a sad thing to think about. It's it's not sad because Paul, he was ready to go. He was ready to meet his end. And as a matter of fact, as I thought about this, I imagine the only grief that Paul had, the only thing that, that, that broke his heart was that he couldn't stay to do more for the gospel, that he couldn't stay to help the churches grow in their faith. I bet you that was the only thing that really grieved him. But even then, He knew he raised up some disciples. He knew he planted seeds that would grow into oak trees. 
I am sure, I can be very sure of that because he says something very close to it when he wrote to the Philippians probably five or six years before this moment of his execution. Philippians chapter 1, you don't need to turn there. This is what Paul wrote to the Philippian Christians. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Man, to be able to say that. If I am to live in the flesh, that means if he's, you know, continued living in this life, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Amen, Paul. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Paul saw his life as a life of service, and a life that's supposed to be poured out. Here he says in Philippians 2.17, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and I rejoice with you all. Paul is saying, if I have to give my life for your spiritual good, I'm in. That is what Paul lived for. So it's very fitting as Paul is about to die, he says the same exact thing. Let's pick it up in 2 Timothy chapter 4. I'm going to reread verses 1 through 5 because we looked at that two weeks ago and just give you the context again. Paul writes, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the Word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions." and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. As I said two weeks ago, these are Paul's final words to Timothy and the believers at Ephesus, and by application to all of us, and his command, he basically gives us command to gospel faithfulness there in verse 1 and 2. It is preach the Word, be ready all the time when it's convenient or inconvenient. Reprove, rebuke, exhort, remember? Be ready to convince people of the gospel. Be ready to correct people with the gospel. Be ready to comfort people with the gospel. Do this all the time. Be ready. Why? Verse 3 and 4, because there's coming a time people don't want to put up with it. They will get bored of it. They'll want something else. And that's the time you don't flake out. You double down. The way you do this, verse 5, is you have self-control. Don't let other people control you. Don't let pop culture control you. Don't let social media control you. Don't let peer pressure control you. Don't let politics control you. Paul said in Ephesians 5, 18, let the Spirit of God control you. Have self-control and endure the suffering. After all, he said in chapter 3, verse 12, it's going to come. 
If you're going to live godly for Christ Jesus, there's going to be persecution. And Jesus said in John 15, look, if the world hated me, guess what? It's going to hate you too. So endure the suffering. By doing this, you'll fulfill your ministry. But what Paul says is, and if you don't have examples, Timothy, you Christians at Ephesus, if you don't have examples of this, you don't have to look very far. Look at my life. That's the point of verses 6, 7, and 8. Paul is calling the Christians to gospel faithfulness and then puts himself out as an example of that very faithfulness. And so we're going to look at that example of gospel faithfulness and its application to us as well. And Paul's going to show us his faithfulness in three ways, in the present, verse 6, in the past, verse 7, and finally for the future, verse 8. So let's look at them one at a time. First, in verse 6, um, Paul says this thing, so um, I, I am poured out as a drink offering. First of all, let's, I don't want to make any assumptions. What is Paul even talking about here? Poured out as a drink offering. So in, in case you weren't very familiar, now they would have been familiar as, as either God-fearing Gentiles or Jews who converted to Christianity. Paul's referring to the complex system of sacrifices and, and offerings described in the Old Testament. Now, not every Jew, not every Israelite, could perform every offering and every sacrifice. However, everyone could do the drink offering, which is the one that Paul's talking about. And the drink offering is also significant because not only could every Jew participate in that, it was an offering that symbolized dedication, an offering that symbolized devotion. And at least at a national level, at the main temple, the drink offering was offered daily. And so, Paul is pulling on this idea that this is something that everyone can do, and it's something you do daily. Now, here's the flow of the logic, going back to verse 3. Paul's saying, Timothy, there will be those that are faithless to the gospel, right? Now, he talks about them in verse 3 and 4, but you, you're not to be that way, verse 5. You endure, and the reason you can endure is verse 6, because you have an example in me. So what he's saying, that's the logic is, there's going to be those who are faithful, but you, in a sense, tough it out, and you can do it because I'm your example. That's how he's thinking here from the flow of the chapter. In other words, Paul's saying, let the way I live encourage the way you're going to live. That's a pretty heady thing to be able to say. Let the way I'm living be an encouragement for the way you ought to live. Friends, have you ever given much thought to the reality that Part of God's design of Christian discipleship is in imitating one another, if we can say to, to copy one another. That, that is one of the reasons gathering together regularly and routinely is for our good, because that is what we do. We imitate and copy one another. So, before I explain the theological reason, let me show you the biblical proof of that, as Paul constantly talks about being an imitator of Him. Now, Paul mentions it numerous times in the New Testament. I'm just going to give you a couple examples. So, in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul says, be imitators of me, but notice this isn't an arrogant ego trip. He says, imitate me, and look at that next phrase, as I imitate Christ. So, it was not about taking on, you know, Paul's like a, what are those personality prototypes like INFP or PESPN, I don't know, whatever it is. He's not saying, be like my personality. Be like me as I'm trying to be like Jesus. Now, you might say, well, it's, it's come on, Paul, the apostle of the Gentiles. That's kind of a big ask, isn't it? Maybe. But notice how then Paul says to the Thessalonians, okay, you became imitators of us, not just Paul, but Paul and his co-workers, people that were around Paul. Now, you still might say, well, that's still, 
I mean, if you're a Paul's good friend, you're probably a pretty hefty spiritual heavyweight. But if that's not enough, look what he writes again in uh, 1 Thessalonians 2. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God. So it's not just about imitating Paul. It's not just about imitating a special spiritual elite. It's like, hey, imitate the churches, what they are doing. We are designed to imitate. Do you know why? Because according to Genesis 1, we are image bearers. This is fundamental to our essence of human beings. Friends, the whole fashion industry is developed on the idea that we're image bearers, and we all want to conform to some image. By the way, that's partly why we decided to have the kids stay in here for 15, 20 more minutes, so that they could see and imitate you. I'll never forget when I, uh, my family and I moved back to California. I was in the worship service, and my daughter, she was sitting there first hour. She's 14 now, but she was two at the time. I'm standing in the, you know, she's two years old, so I got her in one arm, and I'm just lifting my hands in worship. The psalmist talks about lifting holy hands to the Lord, and I open my eyes, and here's my two-year-old girl that doesn't know anything, you know, theological or anything. She's just looking at dad, and she just goes, so there's this two-year-old girl holding her hands, and she doesn't know, but what is she doing? Imitating. First hour, there was a little Coco, Coco Brown sitting there, right? And I see her look up at her mom and dad, and then she starts doing the same thing. We are natural born imitators because by God's design, according to Genesis 1, we are image bearers. You can't get away from it. That's what we do. And here's the thing, and, and, and I think this is safe to say. If you're not intentional about who you're, whose image you're bearing, who you're following after, who you're modeling yourself after, it's a good chance you're not bearing a good image because there's so few of them in the world. Let me say that again. If you're not intentional about the people you're modeling yourself after, it's a good chance that you're modeling some other bad behavior. And I'm not saying that as a personal slight because I'm not thinking about anything in particular, but just God made us to bear images. And there's a lot of images in this world that are not helpful or good. And unless we're being intentional, we're not going to be bearing the right image. So the question we have to ask is, not if, but whose image are you bearing? And furthermore, are you um, giving off an image worth imitating? That's a very serious question. That's the, the, the trick of it is, we are all image bearers living and surrounded by other image bearers. Friends, that's why the local church and, and, and living holy lives is so important, because you're going to image me, I'm going to image you. This is why we said, hey, let's put together a church covenant so we can be intentional about how we live our lives corporately together and be reminded of that. This is why, as a church, we take church discipline seriously, because we're image bearers. And if we're not careful, we're going to bear the wrong image, and we need to be careful of the image we portray. Friends, if Apple is concerned about their image, if the MBA is concerned about their image, shouldn't the church be concerned about its image too? Because we are image bearers. I hope this makes you appreciate the, 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 the importance of local church fellowship. And I don't just mean as a social thing, right? And it's a great thing that we have friends. That's a gift from God. But the reality is our lives together are to serve as, a, as an example, as a way to concrete 
materialize the sometimes ambiguous, vague teachings of Scripture to be lived out in practical ways. So when Jesus, when he calls some of the families that were displaced by fires this past week, he's modeling genuine care for people, right? When, when Christian, Bu- uh, Christian Bush uh, uh, calls our meals ministry, she's modeling bearing one another's burdens, right? When Bill Smith at Lord's Supper service says, hey, I think there's a lot of kids in these uh, underserved apartments that need help tutoring, let's just tutor them. He's modeling how we extend the love of Christ to people who don't know it. When Tristan and Jackie go out to people who are on the street, they're modeling how we take Christ's love to meet actual needs. What we should be doing is when we see that, we don't just go, "Eh, that's that's nice for them, good, you know. What you should be saying is like, okay, that is a model of Christian love. That's an evidence of what I should be as a Christian, and either I should be asking, am I doing something similar, or how do I get in on that gospel application? Because they're making concrete what's so often cerebral, right? But the the great principles of Scripture come alive when we see our brothers and sisters living it out. And that is kind of what Paul's point is here. Now, he's not saying, you all be evangelists like me. That's not Paul's point, right? What Paul is saying is by, by using him as an example in pouring out his life, is to recognize that life in this world is a sacrifice. Now, Paul, of all people, sorry, this thing keeps dinging here. Paul, of all people, introduced us to the concept of the body, right? The body metaphor, that every one of us has a different role to play in our churches, in our communities, in in the societies God's placed us in. Not any one of us can do it all, which is why all of us are necessary. My role here is to equip you guys, according to Ephesians 4, to do the work of ministry. My job is not to get paid by you to do the work you're called to do, right? I mean, you know that. And and I tell people all the time, I don't get paid to do this. I don't get paid to be a pastor. I receive a salary generously from this congregation that sets me free to give my attention fully to the study of God's Word so I can help equip you guys to do the work of ministry. That's the way it goes. I can't reach the firefighters. I can't reach the soldiers. I can't reach the financial advisors, the medical professionals. I can't reach all of those. None of you can, but all of us can together. Paul's point is, do you see your life as a spiritual sacrifice poured out uniquely in your situation to display God's glory and plan of salvation? Because I can't do it, right? I'm stuck here most of the week, right? You guys are out there. And that's one of the things that I love so much about being a pastor, but it's also so hard. Man, I used to love being in a secular workplace because I was always, I, have, oh, I shouldn't tell you, I'm going to tell you. Anyway, I used to be working in inventory control when I was a forklift operator. And <laughs> don't, okay, this is, oh my. I would intentionally submit wrong reports so the inventory control would send people with me in my cherry picker to verify the reports, and I get to literally, because I'm up 40 feet in this machine, just me and that person, I get to share the gospel with them all the time. It was awesome, man. Um, but, okay, yeah, yeah, I was young, I was, you know, I didn't, you know, but the point is, I loved it. As a pastor, I don't get to do that as much, but I get to do it through you. Okay, I'm getting off track. The point is, Paul says, are you pouring your life out? Are you pouring your life out as a spiritual service unto the Lord? That's what Paul was doing. 
And friends, it doesn't matter what you are, whatever station God has you, you can uniquely display God's saving plan in your area of influence. You can do it. Don't doubt the powerful witness of just simply being a Christian, living out what a Christian has to be. I'll never forget, last story, and then I move on to point number two. To illustrate the point, when I was in Hollywood trying to break into the music industry, because that's what I wanted to do when I was a young man, be a rock star, um, I got a chance to work with a uh, photographer for Black Sabbath. She was becoming a very well-known photographer in Hollywood. We got to work with her for a week, and after a week of working on various sets or various sessions, she pulls me aside. She says, look, I, I don't want to offend you, but are you a Christian? <laughs> like, I was like, that's a funny way. I was like, yeah. I, I said, yes, I am. I said, how did you know? I haven't said anything about Christ or anything. She says, well, I've been working with you for a week, and in working in Hollywood with bands like you all the time, it's pretty clear there's something, she didn't say wrong with you, it's pretty clear you're different. And I just had to know if it was because you're a Christian. The thing was, she was, she had kind of grown up in the church and abandoned that and given her life to entertainment and trying to be this celebrity photographer. And we had a wonderful conversation, and that led into a couple of weeks because we were working on other projects together, just simply because I was in Hollywood being a Christian. Don't discount your witness if you're being deliberate to live and pour your life out for the gospel. All right, Paul says, that's how I was in the present, but now look at Paul's example in the past in verse 7, and notice the finality of what Paul's saying. He fought, he finished, he kept he fought, he finished, he kept. Notice, Paul is not saying he won, right? He didn't say he was best of his class. He didn't say he was top notch. He could have been last place. He's just saying, I finished. He's emphasizing not outcomes. He's emphasizing faithfulness. He didn't say anything about how well he did in the race. He just said, man, I finished, right? It's like my dad, dad used to always tell me when I was growing up, son, what do you call a doctor with all Ds? I don't know, doctor. Oh, Okay. <laughs> But I guess, well, you guys, you guys get that, right? <laughs> Apparently, though, doctors can't get D's and still become doctors. The point my dad was making was, just get over the line. Just get over the line, right? Paul says, look, you don't have to be top of the class. You don't have to be the best. But finish the task that was given to you. That's faithfulness. And notice the two metaphors he uses of fighting and of athletics. Both of those put an emphasis on endurance. When he says fight, I have fought. That's the, that's the Greek word agon, uh, agon, where we get the English word agony. He's saying, look, I've agonized in the agony. But, what, but notice what he calls it. He calls it a good agony. This is a good agony that he has been a part of. It's like when you work out at the gym. You understand, it's a good agony because it's doing something in you that nothing else can get done inside of you physically. And so you endure the agony. Paul says, I have fought the fight. I have agonized in the agony, and I'm done. I finished the race. I have been faithful. But keep in mind, Paul is just merely living out what he commanded Timothy maybe 18 months earlier in 1 Timothy 6.12. says, fight the good fight of faith, Timothy. You Ephesian Christians, agonize in the agony. This is a good Thing. So Paul had fought his fight. As we talked about, this is the end of his life. He finished his race. He kept the faith. But what exactly did that entail of? What was Paul's fight? What was his race? Wouldn't it be nice to know, get a glimpse of that? Well, we can. Keep your finger in 2 Timothy. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 
2 Corinthians chapter 11. It's just, if you're new to your Bible, it's to the left, so a couple of, several pages. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And so what Paul is doing, we're going to start at verse 23. In the context, Paul is comparing himself to what's been called the super apostles. They were people coming on the scene, bringing a different type of gospel message. They were slick, apparently. They were hand, I mean, they were just, they were, we would call a used car salesman, right? And they were convincing all kinds of people to follow their teaching. Paul is trying to contrast the real ministry life to this kind of super apostleship. So, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 23, I'm going to start at the end of verse 23 when he talks about what he's gone through for the sake of the gospel. So, the end of verse 23 in 2 Corinthians 11. Um, far more imprisonments, he's comparing to the super apostles. I've been imprisoned far more times with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. What's he referring to? Uh, 40 was the number of judgment. And so to be merciful, air quotes, they would only whip you 39 times, okay? So you, you calculate how many times did Paul get whipped for the gospel? Five times, 39. 195 times in Paul's lifetime, he was whipped for the gospel. Verse 25, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Now, we know that they, this was a sloppy stoning because when they are seriously going to stone you and take the time, they bury you waist high so there's nowhere you can go, and then they basically club you to death with stones. Paul survived. I think this is the situation in Acts 14 because they were just kind of enraged and they just started chucking stones at him. So, it wasn't a thorough stoning, but what Paul's talking about is they intended to kill me. And they, did, they went through with it. They left him for dead, but that's what he's referring to here. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure." Verse 28, and apart from all other things, the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. That was Paul's fight. That was Paul's race. Never forget when I was dating my wife, Lori, I was trying to make a good impression on her dad, and so I was asked to come over and help them resod their front lawn. And so I was there with my brother-in-law and, and, you know, their house in Fullerton, and so we're working on this thing. It was, pretty, it was a big yard, a lot of work. We're working out there for a couple hours in the sun. I'm sweating profusely. My brother-in-law's drinking sweet tea. And, my, and Lori comes up to me. We're still dating. She says, sweetie, you're like sweating. You're starting to get a sunburn. Why don't you just take it easy? Take a break. And I looked at my, my, my girlfriend at the time. I said, babe, I am not stopping until that man takes a break. Because I was pointing to her father. He was in, well into his 60s, maybe early 70s. He says, I'm not stopping until he stops. Well, he never stopped. He worked for three more hours. And my brother-in-law, he's in the family, so he don't care. He's like, I'm just drinking tea, man. You keep working, Rick. But I had to prove myself to my future father-in-law. Here's the point. It's amazing what you will do, what resources you will draw upon when you have an example set before you that models how you should be. Friends, the question I want to ask you, and none of us can answer this for you, how are you doing in your fight? How are you doing in that fight against gossip? How are you doing in that fight against self-pity or laziness? How are you doing in that fight to keep up an image that isn't real? Are you even in the fight? Are you even aware where the battles are? How are you running? 
Are you hitting the wall? Maybe you should have stretched a little bit more, you know, before you took off, tied your shoes. Are you exhausted? Are you keeping faith? More importantly, are there people in your life that you can say, I can do it because they're doing it, or they're helping me do it. That's why I'm surrounded by these people. How are you doing in your fight, in your race, in the faith? Friends, and I, and I, I hope you can with confidence say with Paul, I finished. I mean, what a, what a great thing to be able to say, right, if you're Paul. I mean, what a great thing to say. I finished the race God gave me. It wasn't easy. It wasn't like so-and-so's race, which was glamorous and, and comfortable and, and easy and good. It was a tough race. I fought the fight. It was a tough fight. And I came out bloodied and bruised, but I fought it and I finished it and I kept the faith. If you can't say with that confidence, I, I want us to look at the last part of what Paul's saying in verse 8. Maybe that you can be encouraged by that. Paul says, finally, maybe in your translation it says, henceforth. You could also translate that right in the beginning of verse 8 as, from now on. I, I like that one. From now on, Paul says, from now on, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Now, let's just stop. Let's pull the lens out a little bit here. I am so glad that this is in the text. I am so happy. So, so Paul is basically talking about reward here. Paul is emphasizing, hey, he says, from now on, this point out, right? This point out. Yeah, I got to get my head cut off. But from that point out, man, the crown of righteousness, there's relief, there's reward. To the Colossians in Colossians 1.5, he says, there is a hope laid up in heaven for you. Peter, who also died a martyr, 1 Peter chapter 1, said, there is an inheritance kept in heaven for you. James who was also a martyr in James chapter 1, says to the one who endures, you're going to get the crown of life. So we got the crown of righteousness. We've got hope. We've got inheritance. We got the crown of life. All these things are speaking of reward. That is a great counterbalance to a lot of what has been said in this series. Because I don't want any of you to leave to think that the Bible's message is some kind of Epicurean, just suck it up, suffer and just agonize and endure because that makes you spiritual. That's not the message of the Bible. Now, there's, there is a kind of certain spirituality that people are drawn to that, right? Kind of the self-denial, asceticism. You might see that in certain kind of lifestyles. We even have that within the church, kind of a, a legalism or a moralism of a behaviorism, right? Stop smiling. God wants you holy, not happy. So, none of that stuff, right? You can't enjoy this life. Did you see a Puritan ever smile, right? So, I mean, we have these weird ideas. The prophets, they never crack jokes, so you shouldn't either, right? Just mourn and weep and, and serve and tithe and you're done, right? But that's not the message of the Bible. That's not the message of Scripture. Now, we have talked about enduring suffering, we have talked about our struggles and our trials. We have talked about not opting for the easy way, but not because that is inherently more spiritual. That's not the reason we talked about it. We talk about it because it is inherently necessary. Because, friends, until this creation is recreated, until sin and rebellion are put down, until the king of joy and life is not being fought against, if you align yourself with Him, you will be at odds with this world at every angle. What is the message of the gospel? It's my favorite verse in the Bible. Some of you may know it. 
It's Psalm 1611. What does Psalm 1611 say? It says, you make known to me, Lord, the paths of life. In your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand, pleasures forevermore. That's what I'm about. Maybe I'm a hedonist. I don't know. But that's my favorite verse in the Bible. Life, joy, not just joy, but maximum joy, pleasure, and not just for a day at Disneyland, like forever pleasure. That's the gospel promise. Life, not, not just life, but like pathways. You're walking it, and they're full of life. It's not just a description of quantity, but quality and joy and pleasure. That's the gospel. The problem is, friends, in a fallen world, our definitions of life, joy, and pleasure are whacked. And so what we think brings us life brings us death. What we think brings us joy brings us despair and anxiety. What we think brings us pleasure brings us more depression. And the Bible's saying, you knuckleheads, don't you see that I know what joy, pleasure, and life is? And I'm trying to help you reorient yourself to that. And when that happens, I mean, it is life, joy, and pleasure. So when we hear, as we've been hearing in these kind of final marching orders, endure suffering, uh, don't opt for the easy way, the fight, the agony, it's not because it's inherently spiritual, but it's inherently necessary because he has not turned things all around just yet. For sure, the victory's won, right? Calvary did that, but he's not back yet. But in the end, there is a crown of life, a crown of righteousness and an inheritance and a hope. For those who loved his appearing, do you notice that Paul said that? He says, from now on, from this point on, there's a crown of righteousness for me. And you go, yeah, because well, you're Paul. But Paul says, not just me, for all who love his appearing. Guys, I, I, I want you to go to Hebrews chapter 2. So Hebrews chapter 2, just turn a couple pages to the right. Excuse me, Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, a couple pages to the right of 2 Timothy. I, I think this, this, the writer can give us a good practical tip in, in how do we fight our fight? How do we finish our race? How do we keep the faith? This is what the writer of Hebrews says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, okay, I just want to say, what the, writer's, the writer's not talking about your, your dead grandfathers in heaven cheering you on. I've heard people say this all the time. That's not the crowd of witnesses, right? Remember, when you read the Bible, read in context, what the writer's talking about is the entirety of chapter 11. And when you read chapter 11, it's like a hall of fame of brothers and sisters in the Christian faith, some who were kings and, kings and uh, experienced wonderful things, and some who suffered a lot, but all of them were faithful to the call of God. What the writer's saying is, hey, if they could do it in all of their situations, with all the blessings, with all the challenges, life and death and struggle, if they can do this, you can too. That, that's the cloud of witnesses right there. So, so, therefore, since we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. Have you ever seen someone in the Olympics or run a, a marathon or run, running with, like, hiking boots on, jeans, and a parka? No, they're like mostly naked, right? They just have like shoes on, really tight shorts, and a tank top, and that's it. Why do they dress that way? Not because they're trying to meet somebody. They're dressing that way so that they're slick, and they can run, and they win, and they're aerodynamics, and nothing's on them. 
I love how the writer says, he makes a different distinction between sin and the weight that drags you down. I hope you know, hey, and by, by the way, just so you understand kind of the grammar of this sentence, the, this whole thing I'm reading, the main verb here is run with endurance the race that is set before us. Okay, so the main thought here is run with endurance the race set before us. How do you do that? Number one, this great cloud of witnesses encourages you. By the way, I also think that's not just the image bearing of the past. What's the cloud of witnesses in your life? Do you have them, right? So surround yourself with people who can be an example and an encouragement to you. Surrounding by this great cloud of witnesses and laying aside every weight and sin, that's number two. The third thing we do is looking to Jesus. My point is the main verb, run with the endurance. How do you do that? All three of these participles are saying, they're modifying that sentence, run with endurance. And each participle is a participle of means, which means, how do you run with endurance? It's by looking to this great crowd of witnesses, by casting aside every sin and every weight and looking to Jesus. That's how you run with endurance, because Jesus did the same thing. And I love what he says about sin and weight. It's not just the things that you should know, this is wrong, I got to stop it but how many weights are there in your life that prevent you just from running? How many of you just going, okay, this is sin, this is sin, so I'll get rid of this. These technically are not sin, so I'm just going to load myself up and I'm going to try and run my race with this stuff. It doesn't matter if it's not a sin. Does it help you run? It doesn't matter if it's not sin. Does it help you run? If it's not helping you run, get rid of it. You don't need it so that you can run with endurance the race that was set before you like Jesus ran his race. That's what he says here in verse 2. So the, how do you do this? How do you fight the fight, finish the race? How do we do this? Be encouraged by the examples of the past. Be encouraged by the examples of other believers around you. Be a part of a local church to be encouraged by them, to be exhorted by them, to be convinced by them, to be comforted by them, to be corrected by them, right? Number one. Number two, lay aside every sin and wait. The sin stuff should be obvious. I got to knock this stuff out. But what's not so obvious is, okay, what are the weights that are just dragging me down and they don't help me run? Get rid of that stuff too. And then look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, despising the cross, endured it. In other words, Jesus didn't want to do it. He didn't want to go to the cross. But for the joy that was set before him, what's that joy? You and me. Being redeemed having his new life in us, and he says, I'm in for that, just like Paul. What about you? Are you living for this world, or are you pouring your life out for the next one? And when you do that, by the way, then you're a blessing to this world, right? You, some of you have heard, oh, he's so heavenly-minded, he's no earthly good. Can I tell you, you can't be earthly good unless you're heavenly-minded. That's just the reality. If you're just earthly-minded, you're good to nobody, you want to be earthly good? Be heavenly minded. Have the vision of heaven so consume you that you're seeing this world completely different. We've got to keep moving on. The irony here, back to 2 Timothy. The irony here in 2 Timothy is at any moment, Paul knows he's going to hear the condemnation. He will be found guilty of crimes against Rome. He will be considered unworthy, good only for the executioner's block. Nero will condemn him and find him wanting. Any moment, any day, that sentence will come. But Paul knows the Lord, the real judge, he calls him the righteous judge, is the great reverser of our fortunes. And on that day, Paul will be found innocent, worthy, and righteous. 
It is not too late. If you've been pouring out your life for the wrong thing, if you've been running the wrong race, fighting the wrong fight, if you have not been faithful, it is not too late to change. Now, you may say, well, I don't know where to start. How do I even begin? Let me encourage you um, with the words of Psalm 37, 23. And, and it's one thing, but it'll, it has a thousand applications. So let me show you the one thing and maybe talk with somebody about the way you start applying this. Psalm 37, 23, probably the best counsel out there. The psalmist says, the steps of a man or a woman are established by the Lord. Okay, how do I get that to happen? How do I get God to establish my steps? When he delights, when she delights in his way. I like the ambiguity of the pronoun there. In other words, God will establish your steps when he delights in you, or God will establish your steps when you delight in him. Either way, God will establish your steps. But I like to take it in that if I delight my way, my delight, if I delight myself in God, He's going to establish me. Can you delight yourself in God? What does that mean? Talk to somebody. What does it look like to delight yourself in the Lord? When you do that, He will establish your steps. He is the righteous judge, the great reverser of fortunes, and He can do that for your life. Delight yourself in Him. Cast aside every sin and wait because of what He's done. Maybe it was the brilliance of the morning sun that Paul saw on that fateful day. Maybe it was the glory of God. We won't know. But when the world laid Paul's head on the executioner's block, the Lord laid on Paul's head a crown of righteousness. By God's grace, none, very few, if any of us will ever know Paul's last experience of martyrdom, but we can know his first experience of heaven and have a crown of righteousness placed upon our head so that we can each be, by God's grace, an example of faithful gospel ministry, living together, correcting each other, encouraging each other, comforting each other with the hope of the gospel. That was Paul's, we could almost say, dying wish. And because men and women for 2,000 years have been faithful with that, we're sitting and standing here today. Let's hope we can continue so that if the Lord tarries 2,000 years from now, it'll still be happening. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Paul's words. We all know we are undeserving and unable to do this, and so we cry out for mercy and help. And as I even pray that, I realize your mercy is seen in the men and women in this room, young and old, recent converts and veterans, all of us encouraging one another, comforting one another, correcting one another, convincing one another of holding fast to the gospel truths. We cannot do this alone, Lord, so would you continue to bind us together Help us be the church effectively, regardless of what happens this week in our political life. The kingdom of God marches on, and we take great confidence and joy in that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.